Hello, my name is Deborah Hamilton, and welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This podcast seeks to define and explain this important question from multiple points of view and disciplines. We will interview owners, breeders, caregivers, defenders, advocates, champions, and educators. The mission of this podcast is to seek and foster collaborative conversations so that every point of view feels heard, acknowledged, and appreciated. I look forward to your joining us on this journey toward a better understanding of similar and divergent points of view. It is possible to have an impossible conversation. It starts with listening first. I'm so glad you're here listening in with me. Now let's get started. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton. Thank you so much for coming to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Today, I am so happy to interview a partner at Forcelli, Deegan, and Tirana, and also my very dear friend, Mary Monjoy, who, believe me, helps everyone, especially people who work with animals, who have animals, anyone who is impacted by animals. She's like the human dynamo of the law and animals when it comes to business or anything, quite frankly, trust in the states, you name it. Um, Mary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Thank you, Deborah. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I just want to know for everyone who's listening, why do pets matter to you in your life, in your practice, and beyond for your clients? So I guess on the most personal level, my pets matter because they are the only source of unconditional love on the planet, uh, at least in my life. Uh, and I think in most people's lives, pets uh, love you more than they love themselves. And that is a rare and beautiful and precious thing. Um, as to why they matter on a business level, um, I love the opportunity that I have to help pets by helping veterinarians grow their practices, um, reach out to their clients, and use their skills to help improve the lives of animals. Um, I think it's just one big circle of giving. And while it is business, and some people would say, you know, buying and selling practices or helping with employment agreements or doing things like that really doesn't really help pets at the end of the day. Happy veterinarians um, mean that pets are getting better care. You're so right. You absolutely are. Because I have to tell you that if a veterinarian feels secure in their practice, uh, both financially and um, employment wise, it makes for a better practice culture. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think that um, a stable culture where people feel safe and protected and um, there's a give and take of ideas between that vet and every member of his staff and um, a culture of treating clients uh, with the greatest measure of transparency that they can and being honest and open avoids um, so many issues. And in the end of the day, that helps the pets too. Right. It, uh, those people are more ready to do their work. Clients are more ready to listen. Uh, happy clients, happy vets, happy pets. You know, it's it's important to really address these things initially when you're opening your practice or when you're um, entering an established practice, which I think are two totally different uh, points of view that a veterinarian would be coming into a practice 
looking for, and you handle both of those. Can you tell us a little about what matters? Um, why do pets matter in the veterinarian um, field when a veterinarian is opening a practice and then maybe entering an established practice? Okay. So I think the biggest thing I see when I have a vet, young or old, because sometimes I get brand new vets out of school that are acquiring their first practice or starting a practice from the ground up. I also, like right now, have a vet that had his own practice for many years, sold to corporate, went out, worked for many years for others, and has decided, you know what, I want to get back into my own practice again. So he's starting again, right? So you start with different level, levels of knowledge and skill, but when you start from the ground up, you have all the challenges of any startup business, right? Where are your clients going to come from? Where are my contracts? Where are my employees going to come from? All of that. But in a vet practice, I think more layers on top of that exist. There exists, you know, the building of a culture. Um, how do people treat each other within that practice and how do they treat um, the clients that come in? Not necessarily the pets, the clients, the owners, the pet owners and how those to pet two owners... Two and four-legged clients. Two and four-legged clients. You know, you need to build that culture and make sure that those people are, you know, people and the pets are treated the way you would treat them. So you need to train your staff above and beyond, I think, um, in other businesses. So, you know, from a startup position, I think so many young vets and even vets who are older that are starting their own um, practices, you know, they have to decide what that culture is going to be. And what I really encourage them to do is to reach out and spend some money, which sometimes they don't have or can't afford, but I tell them it's money well spent to reach out and at least do a consultation or try to um, enter into an arrangement with someone who has experience, a practice manager, a business consultant who can come in and help them, you know, design their systems from the ground up in terms of, you know, something as simple as practice management software to how their staff answers the telephone to how their drugs are accounted for to how they put an inventory system in place if there's so many moving parts that i think there's sometimes their hesitation everybody thinks they're going to do this on their own but i think what i encourage them to do from the minute they contacted me at, through is to find someone on from the outside to help them build their culture. And it's the same for a vet that buys an existing practice or comes to work in a practice. Um, if you buy an existing practice, you need someone to help you integrate your mindset into the mindset of the people that you're retaining. And it may not be the same. And in some ways, I think that's harder to change culture than to implement culture because people in my point, from my experience, don't like change. They may say they embrace change, but most people think they're doing everything right. So they view change as criticism and being able to make those changes without, you know, upsetting people um, who may have been there for a very long time. I think that's a different challenge uh, as opposed to a startup. It's a huge challenge. You and I have spoken about that so much. It's about perspective and perception. So you might be thinking you're just helping someone be their best selves and they're taking what you say as a criticism. We all remember the teacher who told us what we did wrong. We hardly ever remember the teachers who told us what we did right. 
Oh, that's correct. I mean, I think that's just human nature uh, that you always <laughs> remember, you know, the criticisms way more than the compliments. And we internalize the criticism way more than that. Self-love and self-care is not a priority most times, right? We're always, I, I don't know, I can only speak for myself. I'm always beating myself up that I could have done something better. And, you know, um, you have to kind of sometimes step back and say, well, I did this right today. You know, how many things did I do right? And if I misspoke or said one thing wrong, okay, I'll make that better tomorrow. But you have to take that pause, whether vet, non-vet, lawyer, doctor, whoever, vet tech, you need to step back and say, okay, did five things right. I always, I always say to myself, when I speak to my best friend, Mary, the way I speak to myself, and the resounding answer is uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can um, really beat myself up better than any three or four people I know. So it is about being able to hold on to the fact that we all make mistakes. We all do things um, differently. Uh, maybe I think you are spot on when you said it is more difficult most times to change a culture than to initiate a culture. If you start with a certain mindset at the beginning and really, because then everyone is integrated from the beginning and feels a part of it. As you mm -hmm. said, when you come in and you say, we want to really shift this around so everybody's feeling better, you're going to get the people who didn't think it was working so poorly before and why are you fixing it? And they're a little more difficult to turn around, but not impossible. Right. And I, you think about too, like we think about, um, think about the relief that, that goes into different practices all the time, right? Think about all the different cultures they're exposed to and, and all the criticism they open themselves up to, or if they offer an opinion, all of those people see that as criticism. And you, you look at, you know, the statistics in the vet industry over, you know, uh, how they, feel that pressure and it, it comes from within them, but it also comes from the culture itself, you know, and, and, uh, how each practice is different. And when I really admire those people, the most, the people that go from practice to practice and, and take those shifts and, and try to handle other people's pets and work within different cultures to do the best for animals. And they're trying to live their lives and still work and, and do everything. And they're, they are sometimes a really good resource that practices don't take advantage of because they're gathering information, um, and things that work from a lot of different places. So I, um, I spend a lot of time when I do get the opportunity to go out and speak to different veterinarians or to be at meetings. I try to, you know, pick their brains and see what's working and, and what's not. And then I pass that on to my own clients because I can. Absolutely. And, you know, in the vet world, um, you and I both know that suicide is one of the um, this this profession is one of the highest with suicide because, well, it's just a high pressure job. Um, they have the opportunities to find the things to commit suicide. And and really, it is sometimes a thankless job because why do pets matter? They matter so much. And sometimes people are not their best selves. Um, when they lose a pet due to what they perceive as a, a mistake by the veterinarian or the staff. And so, you know, have an out-of-body experience. And I know you've had things like that happen where you've helped vets um, navigate that issue, but it really is incredible how much pressure veterinarians work under 
um, given what they provide to the vet to the to the animals now uh, due to the advancements in veterinary medicine they do so much and uh, you know it's so funny because you look at them and you say I almost wanted to say sometimes to them you know no deed no good deed goes unpunished right yep. and no yep. no pet owner who's not you could design the best plan right and you can send the pet home with all of the medicine and all of the advice and people aren't compliant right but and then they bring back a sicker pet and they're not taking any sort of responsibility they're blaming you even though you've given them good advice and you've you know done the best you can and then you know i I look at social media all the time, right? My practices, they're on social media. My clients are on social media and you, I get those phone calls that say, hey, Mary, you know what? I did this, 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 and this, and yet this person is on there bashing me and hurting my business. You know, what What should I do? What can I do? And I, you know, I feel for them because how do you deal? And you, I, I always say, look, you can respond on public, on social media, but that really to me isn't the solution. Um, then if it just becomes, he said, she said, I think that, you know, it would be better if you haven't gotten ahead of that problem. And, and, and now that person is on social media, it would be great if there was a way to, um, reach out to that person and resolve that conflict and maybe have that person remove it from social media or say, Hey, the vet followed up with me. And now I understand what happened, but that very rarely happens. And I see my clients, um, suffer and they suffer for two reasons. One, they feel it's unfair to them. And second, they're suffering because they gave good advice and yet the pets aren't being helped by the people who aren't compliant. And they, they, that hurts them that they really do feel, um, like they should have done a better job, even though there really wasn't much else they could do. Absolutely. And you know, it's, it's interesting because I have a lot of um, clients who have uh, social media issues who come to me and the, the single best thing to do is to acknowledge and appreciate that someone isn't feeling very good about the care you gave their pet or that someone isn't feeling very good about whatever they're saying about you and your pet. If you're a veterinarian or a pet owner, uh, the best next step is to acknowledge and appreciate it and then say, hey, let's um, either get a real cup of coffee because you live nearby or let's get a virtual cup of coffee because you live somewhere else and see if we can work this out. And that's the only thing I ever tell my clients to do is to reach out and offer to have a conversation, never to address it on social media because as you perfectly put it, there's a, it's no win because it's just going to be he said, she said, he said, she said, and then it's going to escalate and then you get the trolls which have to get involved even though they know nothing. Um, and so for veterinarians, it's so much better to just acknowledge and appreciate that, you know, whatever happened wasn't what you intended or hoped for. And let's have a conversation. I, I always tell my veterinarians when I give discussions, please take the word but out of that statement. Say, I appreciate and acknowledge you didn't have the type of um, experience at our clinic that we'd like. Let's have a cup of coffee. Uh, but to say something, there I did it, but <laughs> to say something, to say something um, that adds to it, which is, but we don't think you were able to take care of the dog the way we had instructed you only will infuriate everyone. And so when you and I talk often and, you know, I talk to the veterinarians who call my office, I, I always say, just offer to have a cup of coffee. Don't try to defend yourself there because it is, 
it is a quicksand um, that you will never pull yourself out of. And uh, when I speak to pet owners who put these things up, I often ask them, you know, what is, to what end are you doing this? Well, I just want to ruin him so he never gets another client again. And I often ask them, and, and how's that going to make you feel? Is that going to make you feel better? Is it going to make your dog feel better? You know, why do pets matter? Well, they matter a lot. And what you're saying about this veterinarian, is it really going to help your dog feel better, your cat feel better, your bird? And usually you can bring them back around if you have a conversation that gives them the opportunity to feel acknowledged for the way they feel. They are, It doesn't mean you agree with them or that you think they're right. right. You know, it just makes it a little bit more manageable to move to the next level, which is, okay, I loved when you talked about um, the relief vet, knowing more about every practice in the area and what's working and what isn't working. Same deal. If you listen to what was working or not working when this person came through your office, it might be, you know, a simple fix that you didn't even know was happening. Um, and it, it may just be something that's, that's um, amenable to solution if we all don't try to be right. You know, this well, yeah, and I and I think part of the conversation really needs to be if you're the doctor, right, and you know that they're having trouble recognizing that they weren't compliant, instead of saying, well, had you done what I told you to do, this yeah. would have been a better outcome. Maybe you can say, hey, you know, I know I recommended this, this, and this. How did that work? It didn't have a, a, a fantastic outcome here. Maybe you can tell me about how that went over in, with your pet, so maybe I can figure out something different the next time. And maybe then they'll realize, hey, I didn't do that. Or, well, I tried to do it, but- It was too hard. Know, it was too hard or the dog didn't like it. Right. You know, like, and I think about that and I try to always think about my own, right? So I know that I have very, a lot of difficulty giving uh, oral medication pills to one of my dogs, right? I literally have been found, me, under my dining room table crying because a 12-pound Japanese chin spit out the same pill 14 times. Right. And I can't get him to swallow it, right? So then he doesn't get the pill because I can't, I can't, right? So instead of saying, well, it just didn't work, I am different. I call my vet and say, I am completely incapable, apparently, of pilling my dog, no matter what I do. Well, guess yep. what? There was liquid that tastes like bacon. And now he lays, he rolls over, opens his mouth, and we squirt the liquid down his throat. But that doesn't, that conversation needs to happen um, at some point, right? You need Absolutely. To, Absolutely. And it's all in the presentation. It's like cross-examining a witness. Do you want to attack them or do you want to just try to, you know, lead them along, guide them along the road? Because, you know, there's, there's probably right and wrong on both ends of that equation. But at the end of the day, it's the pet that matters, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's it, why do pets matter? It, the pet does matter. And it's so impactful when they find the solution themselves or they, they come to the realization that, oh my God, had I asked that question about whether or not there was an alternative drug that I could give since I'm so bad at pilling a dog, um, I wouldn't have spent a week or two worried that A, the dog wasn't getting the medication and B, you know, ruining my night because I'm trying to shove this pill down a 12 pound chin's throat, you know, multiple times. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's about asking questions and 
everyone will do so much better and have a better relationship if in fact they ask curious questions as opposed to um you know we know because we're attorneys and we can be guilty of this too um you can ask condescending questions which correct infuriates everyone everyone and it accomplishes nothing right but so, you know so, if you're okay. go ahead with age comes wisdom, right? So Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, we're both over 21, and so we know now that if you say, so, um, how's that pill going? You, how's that pill giving going? It seems like the poor dog isn't getting any better, and you want to choke the life out of the person because, well, I just can't get the pill down the dog's throat. Is there something else? And you're absolutely right. Not only should the client not fear asking questions, but the veterinarian should look at someone and just ask that curious question which is you know some people hate giving pills do you hate giving pills if you hate giving pills there is a you know a generic bacon flavored liquid you could give and it costs five dollars more but how much peace of mind would you get because you were able to have that that ability to give the dog the, the medication quickly right and you know sometimes it comes from look vets Vets are very cost conscious. They 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 always want to make sure they're giving the most economical but best advice, right? So so you have a dog who has, and again, my personal experience, anaplasma from a tick bite, right? So you could give a treatment that costs about $22, but you have to pill the dog twice a day for six weeks. Or for $135, you could give the dog a single shot of medicine, right? Yes. I, wa I wasn't offered that option until I spoke to a friend, a vet friend, and said, this is insane. Not working for me. I know for a fact I am not going to be compliant, and I also know she needs it. So what do I do? And then I got the advice to, hey, inquire about this shot, right? So I just think part of it is too, from a vet's point of view, don't always judge that somebody won't spend the extra money. I think, you know, they try to do it in increments, try not to make break the bank, try not to, you know, always suggest the most cutting edge if something else will work. And I think you have to give people options and, and let them do that. And I think more and more that's becoming the case. And I think um, one of the things I would, I recommend to all my clients is make your life a little bit easier on that front and help the pets out because they matter and try from the minute somebody walks into your practice to get them to buy some pet insurance so that, Absolutely. that they have that option. And more and more of the insurance companies are making it so much simpler to, file a claim. Some will even prepay claims now, like in human medicine. Um, it's becoming, I think, easier and easier, you know, if people can afford it. Um, and if you buy when they're young and you have them there throughout the practice, they'll get better care when they're young. Throughout their lives, the costs are lower. I am a big believer in that. And I try to always encourage um, my clients who are veterinarians to don't be shy about you know, recommending that. 
You know, Mary, it is, I've, I'm thinking of three different topics that we'll have to take up um, after this podcast is done. One is I'd love to talk more about a relief vet and the value they bring to your, you know, mental health, your um, quality of life and your practice because they bring such a wealth of information through the door if you look at them that way. Um, and also that options talk with your client, you know, it, it really does take finesse Mm -hmm. um, have the option conversation with your client where your client doesn't feel, if I don't take the expensive one, they're going to think I'm a cheapskate and I'm not going to spend money on my dog or, you know, well, if I, you know, take the expensive one, I'm not going to be eating for months. Um, it, it really makes it a conversation. So we'll come back and do that. I want to thank you so much for being on Why Do Pets Matter, the podcast that talks about why pets matter with lawyers and doctors and all sorts of people who are in the pet service industry, pet space. Mary, thank you so much. And Mary, again, is a partner with For Shelley Deegan and Tirana, and that's on Long Island in New York. And she is there to help anyone who has any questions. We'll put your information at the bottom of the podcast so people can reach out to you, Mary, if they need you. Thanks, Deborah, for the opportunity to speak to everyone and have a great night. Thank you so much. This is Deborah Hamilton. And again, this is Why Pets Matter, the podcast that talks about why pets matter. Have a good evening. Thank you for listening to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? This is Deborah Hamilton, and this podcast is my passion. Do you have a great guest or idea for a topic you'd like me to explore? Go to my website and click Contact at Hamilton Law and Mediation. That's Hamilton Law, L-A-W, and A-N-D, Mediation, M-E-D-I-A-T-I-O-N.com. Until next week, our pets do matter. This is Deborah Hamilton thanking you for being here. <laughs>